All right, as you're having a seat, please turn to Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Romans 7, 24 is where we'll start this morning. Um, I, I like ropes courses, and I realize that, that that's kind of a dividing line. Like Some people love heights, some people hate heights. Uh, some people don't know if they would love a ropes course, so they, they try and they realize they made the worst decision of their lives, right? Because once you get up, you're kind of stuck once you're in the process. And normally, the end of the process with a ropes course is that you have to jump off of a platform. It's a zip line to get down to the ground. And I have seen uh, grown, mature adults just like babies. They're just locked up. They just freeze up, right? They're back up against the pole or against a tree, and they can't move, right? And, you know, it's some 13-year-old guide who's saying, come on, it's easy, jump, right? And they're just locked up. They're completely frozen. They can't move. They know they should jump. They know they could jump. They, they're pretty convinced they won't fall to the ground and die, but they can't. They just simply can't move. They can't go backwards. There's a line of people behind them, afraid to go forward, frozen. So what do you do? Well, a lot of ropes courses I've seen, they have an extra guide up there who clips in and wraps his or her arms around the frozen adult and says, on the count of three, I'm going to jump with you, okay? We're going to do this together. You can do this on the count of three. One, two, jump, right? And just take some of them. You, they scream, and they, and they get to the bottom. They go, oh my gosh, that's so exhilarating. Uh, I'll never do that again. And I thought about that illustration as I've been reading through Romans 7 and into Romans 8, and I thought, you know, that's, that's kind of like Romans 7, we know we should move forward. We know what we should do or what we shouldn't do. We just can't. We feel, we feel frozen. We feel locked up. What do we need? We need a guide to wrap his arms around us and to carry us where we need to go. That's the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to talk about as we move into Romans chapter 8. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So as a reminder, the Spirit is not a thing. The Spirit is not this force that is impersonal. The Spirit is a person. Third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Because the Spirit is third, we talk about the Spirit's third. The Spirit's not less than the Father or the Son. They're all equally God. So the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ and your debt is removed, God lives inside of you. God lives inside of you. And God's intention is to empower you to grow and to change. And so my question that I want you to be thinking about as we work through Romans 8 this week and a couple more weeks after that is do you actually believe that God can change you? I mean, really, do you, do you believe that God can make you into a different person? And maybe you came in this morning and you are struggling with sin and you're struggling with a sin that you've struggled with time after time after time and you wonder, can God change you? And I want to challenge you to, to think about that. Do you believe Maybe not in a moment, maybe not in an instant, but through the course of your life that you can become more and more and more and more like Jesus through the power of the Spirit. My prayer for us as I've been working through this passage this week is that as we, we finish Romans 8 that we would just be confident that God can change us. And we'd have a better understanding of how the Spirit changes us so we can cooperate with the work of the Spirit in our lives. So, Let's get into it. Romans chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 24. It reads like this. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus 
has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we've said the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel, and that it's good news. The gospel is good news because God's Spirit changes us from the inside out. God's Spirit can change us from the inside out. How does he do that? Well, Paul's going to give us three ways that he does that. This morning, the first is this. The Holy Spirit frees us from condemnation. The Holy Spirit frees us from condemnation. So maybe you noticed as we read through that, those first few verses, that the whole Trinity shows up. Right? Father is there, Son is there, Spirit is there. That is, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are working on your behalf. It starts with God the Father, because throughout Scripture, it's God the Father who initiates and chases after broken, fallen people. It says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. What did God do? He sent His Son. The Father initiated. He sent the Son, and the Son said yes, and the Son came. Verse 3, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. My translation says, as an offering for sin, that's um, a good translation. It literally says concerning sin, but wherever that phrase occurs throughout Scripture, it's talking about a sacrifice, an offering. Jesus came from the Father, sent from the Father for a specific purpose, that is, to remove the debt of our sin. But not just to remove the debt of our sin, but to destroy the power of sin in our lives. So chapter 1 opens up like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's answering the question that Paul left us with at the end of chapter 7. Who will set me free from this body of of death? I'm frozen. I want to move forward. I know what I should do or what I shouldn't do, but I can't move forward. Who will set me free from being frozen, locked up, unable to move forward? And the answer is Jesus Christ who's not only removed the debt of our sin, that was chapters 3 through 5, but has also broken the power of sin through his sacrifice. Again, he says, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that word for condemnation means literally to judge down upon. It refers to the verdict, the sentence against us, but also the consequence of that sentence which is that we labor under the power of sin because there's no more condemnation. The power of sin is broken. We don't have to say yes to sin any longer. It's a fact. No matter how you feel about it this morning, you don't have to say yes to sin. Now, let me illustrate. When I was a kid, uh, I didn't know anything about Christian camps. I grew up in New York, and I mean, I know there's a few Christians up there for sure in New York, but uh, I, you know, I didn't know anything about Christian camps, so I went to sports camps. I went to baseball camp and hockey camp, and baseball camp was just super fun, you know, it's just, you know, pretty laid back, but really enjoyable. Hockey camp I loved, but it was really hard. I loved it because you got to skate during the summer for two weeks. It was amazing, but it was, it was a really hard camp, and, um, you know, it was run by college hockey players, which, that's a rough crowd, okay? That's a really rough crowd, and I think, in hindsight, if my parents had known what they did to us, they probably wouldn't have let me go to hockey camp. It's almost, almost like right on the verge of 
of abuse. I mean, it was really rough, but, but we loved it. You know, I was talking to a, another fellow hockey player. He's from Colorado. He goes, yeah, but we loved it. I said, yeah, we do. I don't know why, but we did. I remember one thing, you know, they'd make us do leg lifts, right? So we're laying on our backs doing leg lifts, and the, if we'd done something wrong, they'd come through, and they'd go bang, 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 like bang, bang on our abs with the end of their stick. I mean, it was just brutal. It was really rough. We're like, more, give me more, right? It was just, that, that was hockey camp. And then, and then one other exercise they made us do is they'd make us put on a, a weight vest, and then we'd have to waddle right, like a duck. So you'd put on a weight vest, and then you'd waddle all around the room. And it was just, my, my buddy, he, he goes, oh, man, yeah, that was the worst. It was terrible because you got a weight vest on, and it's tearing up your skin, and it's just tearing up your muscles. And the best thing is when you just, you took it off, and you put on your skates, right? And you just, you just felt free. Well, what Jesus has done for us is he's, he's taken off the weight vest, you, you don't have to say yes to sin. And the life of Jesus proves this is true. I want you to th- re- think back and remember um, when Jesus went into the wilderness to be te- tempted by the devil. Do you remember what happened right before that? Right, in the sequence of Jesus' life, right before he went to the desert, what happened? Uh, he, was, he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And, and it says this, it says, um, Father, Son, and Spirit were all present. It says, the Father's voice came out of heaven and said, this is my beloved Son. This is the Son I love, in whom I'm well pleased. He has my favor upon him. And then the Spirit descended like a dove and empowered Jesus. And with the approval of his Father and the empowerment of the Spirit, he went out to do warfare with the adversary. And the adversary tempted him, a variety of temptations, but one of those was, I know that you're pretty hungry. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Make the stones into bread and satisfy your need. Now, Jesus could have made stones into bread, right? Uh, We're told by the Apostle Paul later that as God initiates, Jesus executes the will of the Father, and it was Jesus who was creating the manna in the wilderness, right? So he made bread out of nothing for all of Israel and fed them. Later in Jesus' ministry, he's presented five loaves and two fish, and he feeds 5,000. So Jesus, as the Son of God, had the power to make stones into bread, but he didn't, did he? Instead, he responded to that temptation with the Word of God, through the power of the Spirit of God, knowing he had the approval of God. That is, in other words, Jesus, in the moment of this temptation, he didn't pull out his deity gun and start blasting rocks and make them into bread to satisfy his need, did he? No, instead, he relied only on the resources that you have and the resources that I have, which is the approval of the Father. You are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter. God loves you in Jesus. He can't love you any more than he does already. He loves you with a perfect love. He will never love you less. You have his favor. You have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. You have the Word of God that you can place inside of your heart. Jesus' life demonstrates that any man or any woman who is fully consecrated to the will of God can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Because Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Father said, because you've accomplished my will for your life. I'm going to give you a gift to pass on to your people. That is the Spirit. I want you to send the Spirit to them. Let's read verse 2 again. For the law of the Spirit who produces life in Christ Jesus has set you free 
from the law of sin and of death. The gift that Jesus promised was the indwelling Spirit of God. Well, where did he promise that? Let me take you back to John chapter 14. This is the upper room discourse. Jesus' last meal before he's going to go to the cross had a long conversation with his followers. He said this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What Jesus is saying is, I will come to you through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will minister my presence in you and through you and to you. Later he would go on in chapter 16, it says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He says, it's better off, even in the midst of your grief, you don't want me to leave. But I can send you the Spirit, and the Spirit will minister my presence to you. Every single one of you, wherever you are, in whatever circumstance you are in, I will send you the Spirit. And when did the Spirit come? Well, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost had come. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Later, Peter will explain what had just happened. He said, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Now, the Spirit is fully God. That means the Spirit is eternal. The Spirit has always been at work in human history. But there came a point in time where the Spirit began to work in a new way. Regenerating people producing life in them, indwelling them permanently and empowering them, never leaving, so that if you have the Spirit of God, you belong to God, and you belong to God permanently. And the Spirit begins the process, having believed in Jesus, of transforming you and changing you from the inside out. Read with me down chapter 8 and verse 8. He says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now let me make a few observations from those three verses. The first is, you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are in the Spirit. You're not in the flesh. This is a statement of your identity. If you don't know Jesus, you are in the flesh. If you know Jesus, you are in the Spirit. That's who you are. You, as a follower of Christ, having believed in Jesus, are now in the realm of the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. Also, notice he says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and a better translation here is, since indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin. That's what we were talking about last week. Paul says, I am of flesh. I'm not in the flesh, but I'm of the flesh. Meaning, I'm not identified with Adam any longer. I'm identified with Jesus Christ. But I'm of flesh. That is, 
All of my being has been affected by the fall. My physical body, but also my mind, my emotions, my will, my conscience. I have this thing uh, that's part of who I am. It's called flesh. It is that, that pull inside of me to move away from God. That's what he means. Same phrase. Uh, the body is dead because of sin. Okay, the body is affected. The mind is affected. The will is affected. The emotions are affected. The conscience is affected. I'm of flesh. That is, I'm a, I am dead to sin. I don't have to say yes to sin any longer, but sin is not dead to me. I am still vulnerable to temptation because there's a part of me that still thinks I can figure out life apart from God. That's flesh. So who am I as a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, the Spirit of God dwells in me, but also I have this thing called flesh. So there is a constant warfare inside of me. That's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 7. Now he says, though the body is dead because of sin, notice the end of this verse. He says, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So I also have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me. The Spirit is alive because of righteousness. What he's talking about is, is regeneration and empowerment, right? So the Holy Spirit has many ministries in our lives. The first is regeneration. The Spirit causes us to be born again. Let me illustrate for you from John chapter 3 and then Ephesians 2. It says, Jesus answered and he said to him, that is to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, which just, Nicodemus just blew his mind. He's like, what are you talking about? I can't be born a second time. I can't go back into my mother's womb and be born. And Jesus says, you're the teacher of the law and you don't get this? I mean, Jesus was sarcastic at times, right? He really was. So he just kind of tags Nicodemus. He says, let me explain it to you. You're born first physically, but then you have to be born again or born from above. You have to be born of the Spirit. Why? Because when we walk through Romans 6, our biblical anthropology, you are material and immaterial. You're physical, you're also spiritual, and you're just one person. And the two are bound together. When that binding is broken, when the physical is separated from the spiritual, we call that death, right? It's an unnatural state. So for human beings, for people, we, to, to be whole, we're, the physical and the, the immaterial and the material are bound together. You're just one person. But when you're born into this world, you're born dead. Now, this is what Paul means. Uh, even when we were dead in our transgressions, we were made alive together with Christ. So we're spiritual or immaterial and material, but we're born into this world with our spirit separated from God's spirit, that is death. So you're born dead. Got that? You're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead because your spirit is separated from the spirit of God. You are not spiritually united with God. The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, not only is your debt of sin removed, but the Spirit of God unites your spirit again with God, and you are spiritually alive. You have the life of God dwelling inside of you. You are spiritually alive. But wrapped up into this physical being is still this concept that Paul describes as flesh. So I am spiritually alive, but I also have flesh pulling against the Spirit of God inside of me, so there's a tension. But notice what he says here. Uh, verse 10, if the spirit of Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. That is, there is this principle of indwelling sin that's moving you away from God, but there's also the indwelling spirit, and guess which one is more powerful? 
The Spirit of God dwelling inside of you can give life to your mortal bodies, he says. That is, God can animate this mortal body and cause you, through his Spirit, to actually love righteousness and live for righteousness because the Spirit is stronger than the flesh. When you walk consistently with the Spirit, your life will begin to look like Jesus. Jesus faced temptation in the wilderness and he overcame because he was relying upon the approval of God and the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And when you walk in dependence upon Jesus through his Spirit, your life will be changed because the Spirit is more powerful than the flesh. Simple illustration. Do you remember um, uh, when Jesus is walking on water? It's a great story, right? Jesus is walking on water and the disciples see him. They think he's a ghost. They're freaking out. And Peter was just he never makes sense in what he says, but he goes, well, if you're the son of God, you know, if you're really Jesus, tell me to get out of the boat. I'm thinking, well, if it was Satan, he might say the same thing, and then you'd drown him. You know, I don't know. I just understand Peter's logic, but he does. He says, tell me to get out of the boat, and Jesus says, get out of the boat and walk to me. Can a man walk on water? Can a man walk on water? I'm seeing lots of no's. Jesus walked on water. Is he a man? 100%. Also 100% God. Peter walked on water. Peter's a man. Peter gets out of the boat. He starts walking to Jesus. Peter is walking on water because he is fully dependent upon Jesus. And then he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he starts to sink. Can a man raise another man from the dead? Jesus did. And then Jesus said to his disciples, you're actually going to do greater things. And you see some of the apostles, actually. Somebody fell out of the window during a sermon because it went too long. I'm taking note of that. And <laughs> Paul raised him from the dead. Right? If the Spirit tells you to do something, the Spirit empowers you to do something, you can do whatever the Spirit says because the Spirit is greater than the flesh. Right? And you can walk in holiness and righteousness and become like Jesus from the inside out as you walk according to the Spirit, in dependence upon the Spirit. So let me give you an illustration. Um, before Tristy and I got married, I, I lived in uh, Prague in the Czech Republic for a while. It's a great experience. So when we got married, I said, I'd love for you to go back with me and just see a little bit of my life there in, uh, in Prague. So uh, we decided to fly on a plane. And it, was a, it was a strategic decision to fly on a plane because a boat would take forever, right? can't swim that far, and I can't fly on my own, right? So we thought, okay, we should strategically choose to get on an airplane because that airplane will move fast and help us overcome the law of gravity. Now, I know there's like one physics major and you're going to come up afterwards and you're going to try to correct me. This is a sermon illustration. You should just roll, roll with the lack of technicality in the sermon illustration, right? Gravity's a law. And you can't just pretend it doesn't exist. It's always there. But there are also laws of aerodynamics. And if I get on a plane, the laws of aerodynamics can transcend the law of gravity. The law of gravity is still there, but I'm transcending the law of gravity through employing the laws of aerodynamics. Now, if I choose to open the door of the plane and jump, the law of gravity will kick back in and we're done, right? But as long as I am relying on the transcendent laws of aerodynamics, I can overcome the law of gravity. That is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is the principle of the empowering spirit of God dwelling inside of you is greater 
than the power of sin in your life. Do you believe that? Thank you for one whoop. <laughs> we're just building up. We got a few weeks on this. By the end, we're just going to erupt, right? Yes, God's Spirit can overcome sin in your life. Why? Paul says, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only has the debt of sin been removed, the consequence of sin crushing you has been removed. You can say yes to righteousness and no to sin. Second, the Holy Spirit creates real righteousness inside of us. Read with me again verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. And here's the purpose statement. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So, what is the goal of the Christian life? I think that sometimes when we present the gospel, we become really reductionistic. Dead of sin is removed, avoid hell, get heaven. Right? The goal of the Christian life is, is much more than that. That's a great starting point. But the goal of the Christian life is that Christ would be formed in us. The goal of the Christian life is that we would be made more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. The goal of Christian life is that we would be changed right now from the inside out. Yes, the starting point is our debt of sin is removed and our future hope is that our destiny is secure and we will have heaven. But right now, the gospel is at work inside of us so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. So when he says righteous requirement, he means real righteousness, genuine righteousness, not just fulfilling a list of rules and regulations, but actually being changed in our hearts so that we love what is good and pursue what is good in our lives. Now, let me illustrate. Hold your place in Romans 8 and turn back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and verse 27. Matthew chapter 5, uh, 6 and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is Jesus' exposition of the law. In other words, here's really the heart of the law. This is the essence of what God really believed and hoped for would be produced righteously in people's lives. So notice what he says in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's saying this, look... Sure, you know, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be faithful to your wife and not commit adultery, but what I really want to see in your, your heart is that you don't lust. That instead, what you long for is what's good, right? That's real righteousness. It's not just obeying externally, but it's a transformed heart. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your father. That is, so that you may be like God. 
Because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. That is, he does good even to his enemies. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect or whole or complete as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow, that last verse, is that's a zinger. I would argue that, in a sense, the Sermon on the Mount is really bad news. Because you cannot be perfect in your own strength. That's what Paul meant when he said, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. That is, all that the law had to work with, even though the law is righteous and true and holy, but all that it has to work with is your own good intentions and your willpower, which will fail. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, but you can't. Fortunately, Jesus will go on, chapter 11, he'll say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and trying to do it on your own, and I'm going to give you rest. I will create in you what I'm calling forth from you by the power of my spirit, which is a changed heart from the inside out. Paul describes this in Galatians 5. He says, the fruit or the manifestation of the Spirit's work in your life is this. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is what the Spirit wants to produce inside of us. He wants to change us from the inside out. Now, how does he do that? Turn back to Romans chapter 8. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled or the righteousness that is actually intended in the law, that heart change might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Or as he says in Galatians 5, uh, keep in step with the Spirit. Walk according to the Spirit. Follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. Do we have anyone in here who uh, loves grammar? Just curious. Anybody? Oh my gosh. There's like, in the first service, literally there was one, like one person. And okay, a few more over here. So I just want to say to you, and I don't say this in a, in a pejorative way at all, but you're nerds. And um, it's okay because I like grammar too, right? I mean, you know, I had a really great conversation with this one person from the nine o'clock service afterwards. I, I, I like grammar too. I like grammar because uh, language is a gift from God. In the beginning, God spoke, right? and he, he created through his words, and words are just such a gift, and so grammar is just fascinating to me. It wasn't always. It wasn't when I was in seventh grade. It is now, but it's important to the Apostle Paul, so therefore, we're going to put a, a moral weight of authority on grammar this morning that you should love. Paul makes a point of clearly distinguishing prepositions. Right now, you're going, oh, what's a preposition? <laughs> It's important. Hang with me. You are not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. Right? Preposition, in. You are in the realm of the spirit because the spirit is in you. You belong to God. That's your identity. You may not feel it this morning. It doesn't matter. It's who you are. You are not in the flesh any longer if you've believed in Jesus. However, every single day, as a follower of Jesus, you can choose to walk according to the flesh or walk according to the spirit. Right? You can walk consistently with your flesh, or you can walk consistently with 
the Spirit. As someone who is in Christ and in the Spirit, you have a choice every single moment of every single day. Do I walk consistently with the desires and longings of my flesh? Do I walk consistently with the desires and longings of flesh or spirit? It's just a choice I've got to make every single day, every single moment of every day. And the outcome of walking according to the flesh is death. That is, I'm living experientially separate from God. Or it is life. I'm living experientially with God. Now, let me give you two illustrations, descriptions of uh, the life life according to the flesh and life according to the Spirit. Philippians 4. This is walking according uh, to the Spirit. It says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Walk consistently with these things. First John chapter 2. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So, what he will say is the way that you walk according to the flesh or, or according to the Spirit is you, you allow the Spirit to transform your mind. Hey, read with me in chapter 8, verse 5. Those who are according to the flesh or walk according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death, But the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So let me unpack that for us. As we walk in step with the Spirit, in the next couple weeks we're going to talk more specifically, how do we practically walk in step with the Spirit? We're going to talk about that. But as we are walking according to the Spirit, the Spirit changes our mindset, That's one of the key words in Romans 8, is this word, uh, set your mind or mindset. And what he's talking about is not just the thoughts in your head, he's talking about your whole orientation toward life. Another word for this might be your worldview. What do you actually believe is true and valuable and enduring? That's your mindset, your worldview. And as you walk According to the Spirit, you keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit changes your orientation or your mindset about what you believe is true and valuable and what your affections are toward. Another way of saying it maybe be, might be your obsession. What does your mind drift toward and think about? And what, do you, what are you drawn toward? And what do you love? Where do you set your heart? The Spirit changes all of that. The Spirit changes your entire orientation toward life. And so there are two, in a sense, orientations toward life, and they're not reconcilable with one another. There is the orientation or mindset of the spirit and the orientation or mindset of the flesh. And the mindset of the flesh, the orientation of the flesh, is death. It's life apart from God. It's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, Notice which he says, which is all passing away. It's not enduring. Why would you give your life to it? Because you're deceived by sin. And so you think, that's where I will get life. That's what the flesh does to you, right? The flesh deceives you, tells you you can find life apart from God. Make stones into bread. Satisfy your own hungers. Make a name for yourself. Pursue the desires of your body. Because that's good. It's true. It's valuable. It's enduring. That's the orientation of the flesh. 
Or, as Paul said earlier, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever ever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, think on these things. Let your mind be transformed by the Spirit so your whole worldview is shaped differently. So let me give you uh, one illustration of this. Um, wealth. Wealth. Is, wealth. is wealth good or evil? Is it good or bad? Kind of neutral, right? I mean, it could be good, could be evil. Kind of depends on your orientation toward it, right? Um, in the Bible, you've got super wealthy people who, were, who just loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Abraham was very wealthy. Job was very wealthy. David, very wealthy. Esther, very wealthy and loved God. You also have poor people who loved God. Elijah was really, really poor, right? Elisha, really, really poor, didn't have much. John the Baptist, really poor. John, the apostle, died on the Isle of Patmos and he had no possessions, right? Really poor people who love God. So you can be rich and love God, you can be poor and love God. Wealth is, in a sense, it's not inherently good or bad. It depends upon your, your mindset or your worldview toward wealth. So what's a fleshly mindset toward wealth? Uh, it would go something like this. I earned it so I can keep it. And I can do whatever I want with it. And I can use my wealth to satisfy my lusts and longings. I can use my wealth to make a name for myself. I can use my wealth to prove to people how important I, I am. I can use my wealth to uh, exercise power over other people because it's my wealth. I earned it. That's a fleshly mindset toward my wealth. The mindset of the Spirit is this. Everything that you have is a gift from God. Your body, your life, it's all a gift from God. Your wealth, it's a gift from God. And Paul says, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So what do you do with your wealth? Enjoy it. Enjoy this gift. Also remember, it doesn't last, and you can't take it with you into eternity, so you should be really generous and ready to share, because God's generous. So enjoy some, and also give a whole bunch away. Because it's not yours to begin with, it's just a stewardship that you have, so use it wisely, remembering it doesn't last forever. So therefore, you should give 10% and be done, right? Think about this for a minute. What is the mindset of the Spirit? You give your 10% and you're done, right? Some of you are going, Ooh, I'm not sure how to answer that because, yeah, tithing, right? That's a, that's a Bible thing. What's the mindset of the Spirit? Interestingly, the concept of tithing is never repeated in the epistles. Do you know that? It's not repeated in the epistles. Instead, our instructions after the presence of the regenerating indwelling spirit is this. Uh, give generously. Give joyfully. Paul says God loves a hilarious giver. He loves somebody who just loves to give. Give sacrificially. 10%? I don't know. Maybe it should be 9. Maybe it should be 27. I don't know. I don't know what your percentage should be. You're never told a percentage again because the law and the flesh says give 10, be done, because the rest is mine. The spirit says 100% of it belongs to God. And God loves to give. God actually loves to give to his enemies. And God gives willingly, freely, sacrificially. We want to be like God, right? So that's how we think about our wealth. That's the mindset of the Spirit. And what the Spirit is doing in your life is he's trying to reorient you to everything in your life. Certainly towards your wealth, but also towards your body. Your body is a gift 
from God. What should you do with it? Whatever God tells you to do with your body, that's what you should do. It's a gift from God. Your family, that's a gift from God. It's not your family, it's his family he's entrusted you with. Your friends, okay, all of your relationships, your job, your career, your house, your retirement plan, all God's, all God's. And what we want, since he's given so generously to us, is we want to give back to him and we want to uh, use it for his honor and his glory. And so I'm going to walk according to the spirit and let the spirit reshape how I think about absolutely everything in my life. And when I do that and I'm in complete dependence upon the spirit, he produces a righteousness in me that changes me from the inside out. I'm not just keeping the rules, 10%, wrote the check, done. I'm looking for opportunities to express and manifest who God is through all of my life. And that's what God wants to do in us and through us. And so, Paul says, Father, Son, and Spirit are at work in your life. The Spirit has regenerated you. You trusted in Jesus. The debt of sin is removed. You have the hope of eternal life. But also what you've got is you got the Spirit right now changing you, moving you, and also promising you, sealing you for the day of redemption. You have life that will last forever. Notice what he says in verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 23. Not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That is, the Spirit does something in the future, and that is he guarantees us eternal life. Now, why did Paul tag that on in the midst of this chapter that's talking about what spirit, the Spirit is doing like presently in our lives? Because future hope allows us to endure in the midst of struggle. And it's going to be a battle. Right? It's going to be a battle. Romans chapter 7. And it gives us hope to know that the future is secure. Let me give an illustration for, for you uh, for your students. I'm guessing that you don't have to raise your hand on this, but there's probably one or two of you who, who you know, you go, I hate my major. Right? It just happens. Um, I think now the average, the student, average student changes his or her major four times. Right? But maybe you're in your major, you hate your major, you kept thinking about changing your major, but now you're like almost at graduation, so you can't change your major. You just got to finish this thing out, right? You're just, you're digging deep. You got to finish it, even though you hate it. So I want you to imagine, if that is, is your scenario, imagine that um, someone comes to you and says, here's the deal. If you graduate on time, which might be six years, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, just on time, whatever on time is for you, right? If you graduate on time, all your debts will be paid for. You will be guaranteed a job. You're going to start at $100,000. you are going to get a company car, and it's a Tesla, right? This is, this is the promise if you endure right now. Would you quit school? Would you give up? No, you'd be even more motivated to endure in the midst of the hardship because you know you have the promise waiting for you. That's why Paul tags this on. Spirit's working for you in the past, regenerating you. You have eternal life in the future. You have presently, he's working in your life to transform you. All of this is the movement of God's spirit in your life. In the weeks coming, what we'll talk about is then how do we walk faithfully, consistently, dependently on the spirit and let the spirit change us from the inside out. Now, 
One thought for you uh, to apply this. We're, next week is uh, Thanksgiving, so we're going to take a week off Romans 8 because I think a lot of you students will be gone. I don't want you to miss any of Romans 8. So we'll take a week off at Thanksgiving. I mean, we will have worship services. We're going to give thanks. Um, but we're going to pause on Romans 8. We'll come back to it. So in the intervening time, um, I want you to think about what you think about. Okay. Maybe you're a journaler, maybe you're not a journaler. Um, if you're not, um, I would encourage you to just get a legal pad out and just write some thoughts. Because we're always thinking about things, but we don't often consciously think about what we're thinking about. And I want you to consider what, what are the obsessions in your life, so to speak? What makes you really, really happy? What makes you really, really sad? What makes you really, really angry? What do you actually believe is true and right and honorable and enduring? So let me illustrate uh, why I think this is important. Um, Matthew 16, remember uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he hears, uh, some think that you're Elijah, some think you're John the Baptist, some think you're the prophet who's to come, and he says to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, again, jumps up, he goes, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, and Jesus goes, nailed it, good job, Peter. Okay, you're Peter, you're a rock, and upon this rock, this proclamation of who I am, I'm going to build my church, I am the foundation. And Peter's just like, oh my gosh, man, I'm way better than the other disciples. I nailed it. I knew the answer. And then Jesus goes on and he says, you need to understand something. We're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and the elders of the nation and they're going to crucify me and rise from the dead. And Jesus says, hell no, you're not. Jesus says, that will not happen to you, Lord. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Man, he's riding high. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Man, he goes from the heights to the depths, just like that. Get behind me, Satan. That's, that is harsh language. What's going on there? So, so you're setting your mind not on God's interests. You're setting your mind on your own interests. So Peter got part of it right. He understood that Jesus was Messiah, but he wanted something from Messiah, which was crush the Romans, install your kingdom, and let me have a throne. Because his flesh said that's where life will be. And Jesus says there are two mindsets, and they can't be reconciled to one another. There's the mindset of the flesh, which is death, and there's the mindset of the spirit, which is life and peace. And if your heart is divided, you will fail. Get that? If your heart is divided between the mindset of the spirit and the mindset of the flesh, you will fail. Just weeks later, as Jesus was having his final meal with his disciples, he says, one of you is going to betray me. Again, Peter speaks first. He says, all of the rest of them, they're probably going to deny you. I get that. I get that. I wouldn't have chosen them either. But me, Lord, I will stick with you. I will be with you. And he turns to Peter and he says, you know what? Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. How did he know that Peter would fail? Because Peter's heart was divided between spirit and flesh, between God's will and his own will. When we say yes, to the Spirit, and we say yes to the will of God, whatever it is in our lives, we will overcome sin and walk in righteousness. 
So what I want to challenge you to do is think about what is your preoccupation? What is your love? What is your affection? What is your, your worldview? What do you think is actually true and valuable and enduring? And what aligns with the Spirit and what aligns with your flesh? So I want you to just take some time this week and just think about what you're thinking about. And I want you to read Romans 8, the rest of the chapter, and begin to think about, well, what does it mean then for me practically to keep in step with the Spirit and let the Spirit change my mind? That's the assignment for the next two weeks. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have uh, not just the hope of eternal life, but we have the hope of a transformed life as we listen to and submit to and walk according to your Spirit. And I pray, Father, that uh, we would actually um, begin to experience that a little bit more uh, today, this afternoon, uh, through the next couple weeks. I pray that we would see you changing our affections, our desires, our, our longings, our whole orientation toward our lives. I pray, Father, that we would experience that freedom from the law of sin and death and the freedom that we have to walk in life with the Spirit. Father, I thank you that you made all of this possible through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.